Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Visiting Victor podcast with Victor Dadaj, where you'll hear stories and strategies to help increase your sales and grow your business. Here's your host, Victor Dadaj. All right, welcome to Entrepreneur's Visiting Victor. I am your host, Victor Dadaj. I hope you're having an amazing day so far. Today, we have an awesome guest. He's an expert in strategic risk and business growth. And drawing on his decades of experience in the insurance industry, he wrote the Bezos Letters, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon, which has become a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and international bestseller. With hundreds of thousands of followers, he has been handpicked by LinkedIn as one of the world's most influential thought leaders. So let's welcome Steve Anderson. How are you doing today, Steve? I am doing great, Victor. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to have you on. And let's get started, Steve. I ask you to please share your story. How did you wind up becoming an entrepreneur? Well, it it's, uh, started a long time ago from a kid just, you know, making money mowing lawns and shoveling snow and those kinds of things. Uh, got into the insurance industry out of college um, and uh, have been in that industry since. And um, I kind of early on in working and selling insurance to individuals and, and businesses. And then uh, later in 1999, I actually started my own business doing uh, consulting to insurance agents here in the U.S. on technology, what's coming, how to use it, how to think about it, um, some nitty gritty and some um, kind of uh, overall thought in terms of what's happening. Um, and all of that uh, led me to start writing that book, um, which is a whole other story in and of itself. So I kind of say I have two sides to me. One is the insurance consulting technology side, and the other is the the book business growth and and really risk uh, and how businesses take or don't take risk and how that affects how they grow. Got it. Well, thanks for sharing. Uh, so like a lot of people, it started when you were a kid, you used to shovel snow, mow lawns. So you always had a bit of the entrepreneurial bug. And then after college, you went into the insurance industry. And do you mind telling me how long you were working in the industry before you became uh, and consulted to the insurance consulting technology area in 1999? So I first got in the industry in the late 70s. Um, and then in 99 is when I kind of switched out of working and selling insurance into technology consulting and helping agents with, and again, if you remember the 99, you know, internet was still, people didn't know much about it. Um, and so there's a lot of help on websites, why you need to do it, SEO and marketing and, um, again, more and more, uh, technology as it continues to develop. Uh, now I'm talking kind of like everybody else, a lot about AI and what they can use it for and how to use it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I've always said that technology continues to change. So it always gives me something to talk about. It's constantly changing. They say it's like, it's doubling like every two years or something like yeah. that. Um, when I was a kid, I was using typewriters in high school. So <laughs> so, so I, do I so, remember that the yeah. college term papers for me. So yeah, yeah. So in 1999, you're right. It was like it was just, a lot of things were still new. But I also remember people were a lot of people were were concerned about Y2K. Was that where were some of your clients concerned about that? 
Well, well very much so. And part of what was interesting with Y2K is that the problem actually came a year earlier for the insurance business because um, policies have a year, typically a year, you know, life, basically. So renewals were coming up in 2000 uh, before um, the 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 actual date. And so the industry, again, like many industries, in fact, like most, responded, but it took a lot of work to get those problems worked out. And so I did do a, um, a series of uh, seminars and in-person workshops on the insurance implications to Y2K, what kind of policy coverage might be in place if something did happen. And, and frankly, my view of that always was you buy an insurance policy hoping you never need it. You know, Y2K was we did all this work hoping nothing happens. But if it does, we want to be prepared and know what to do and how to respond. No, you're right. It's better to be prepared and not have to do it, you know, being prepared to respond, not have to do it than to not be prepared to have all kinds of issues. I, I kind of think of it as I'd rather carry an umbrella and not have it rain than not have it and have it rain. And that's and, happened to exactly. me a couple of times and it's happened yeah. to all of us. So, yeah, you know, and after I, I have to say afterwards, you know, people are like, oh, this was no big deal. And and actually it was a big deal. Um, and I think it's perhaps one of the greatest examples of technology firms and people uh, hunkering down and fixing the problem. So we didn't have any of the potential problems that uh, that were predicted. No, you're right. And it's better to be proactive on these things. And like you said, you just don't know what could have happened. And look, even going back to insurance, I've had friends, unfortunately, who didn't insure. And um, you can, you know, they one living in an apartment and never had a problem, but there was a fire and lost a lot of his stuff. And guess what? They didn't, they didn't bond insuring it and couldn't yep. get anything it, backwards. It, right. And that's why you have it, right? That's why it's there. Exactly. So you just always have to be prepared. So I, I guess some people always just think it's never going to happen to me, but you just you, you can't take the chance. It's better to have that peace of mind knowing that you're covered regardless of what happens. So, yeah, yeah unfortunately, you know, that's just the way you know, some people understand it. Some people don't. So so how is it? You know, how, how does it feel? Because you've been on both ends. You know, was it easy switching from one side to the other? Because some people like when they do it, they sometimes it's a smooth transition. Other people, it's like they have the ups and downs. It might take a few years because you know, they have some struggles. It varies. I have a feeling it probably was was kind of a smooth transition for you. Am I correct? Well, I would say probably maybe a little smoother than some. So kind of that transition out of selling insurance to consulting with insurance agents. Um, they needed a lot of help. Um, I had some visibility in terms of that niche industry. Um, so I was able to kind of take that and uh, leverage that in terms of getting clients and working with them, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and then uh, probably what, what would it have been? About 19, or excuse me, 20, uh, 16, 17, is when I first started thinking about what ended up being the book. I didn't think it was going to be a book at the time, but I was working on an industry work group called The Changing Nature of Risk. And again, as technology comes, develops new things, there are different kinds of risks that businesses face. And I started asking the question, is the biggest risk a business face actually not taking enough risk? 
and that really grew out of how rapid technology continues to develop. We've already said that. And businesses not being able or willing to try and keep up with the changes. And that becomes a, a, a risk to the business and to their growth. And so I started researching businesses that were once very successful and are no longer here. A lot of those we know. And businesses that have continued to be successful kind of throughout that time period. And that's when I came across Amazon and uh, the letters to shareholders that Jeff Bezos wrote. Um, started looking at those letters, uh, ended up reading all of them that had been published at the time as a narrative, as a book, and realized there were threads through those letters of not just what Amazon did, but how Bezos did it at Amazon that I was very intrigued with and thought these could be really good uh, principles for any business owner, regardless of their size. So that's kind of the background of how the book came about. Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to get to Bezos' Amazon in, in, in a minute because uh, they're you know one of the hugest companies in the world. Um, you know, you were talking about like, you know, you know, and I read you a lot of times that sometimes not only to take the risk is the biggest risk. And it also made me think of something else because I, th I thought about Xerox because also I think, would you agree sometimes also just not having an open mind leads you to leads to a lot of risk because you don't take the chance. Because I think about Xerox because a lot of people know in the 70s, they had all kinds of these great workers. Everyone knew about the Xerox copy, but they had the developers there that they did not really have fun who actually wound up developing the first computer uh, graphic interface and something that later became the internet, but because Ooh, they just totally ignored them. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think, you know, that's I, I absolutely. And I think Xerox is a really interesting study because um, they did their Palo Alto Research Center, right? So Park um, came up with all kinds of really um, futuristic ideas. Um, and, and there's sort of this narrative around that, you know, Steve Jobs did go there, did see what they were doing. He took it and, and built Apple, you know, and, and on some of that technology. And I think part of what Xerox doesn't get credit for is the reason they had that is they knew copiers were, uh, I want to say on their way out or going away, and they needed to pivot to some other kind of business model. Now, the question is, could they have done, you know, what Apple did or what PCs did? Maybe, maybe not. And that's part of that cultural difference and the infrastructure that uh, Xerox didn't have in order to take advantage of some of the things that, that were invented there. But really interesting story. I'm glad you brought that up. No, thank you. And definitely, uh, I recommend to our audience, definitely uh, read up on it because there's some really fascinating stuff there. So let's get back to uh, Bezos and Amazon. So, you know, you say Bezos is the master of risk and, um, you know, and you talk about, you know, sometimes not taking a risk is, can be very risky. So how do you know when to take, uh, what, you know, when you're taking too much risk or when you're not taking enough? How do you differentiate? It's hard. Um, I mean, that that's a, a, a key idea. And one of the phrases that uh, Bezos used in his letter is um, you need to eagerly adopt external trends in order to continue to grow as a business. 
and certainly, you know, it, it, a relatively easy example right now is the generative AI and all of that that's going on. That's certainly a trend that's certainly going to do have an impact. So what are businesses doing today to experiment? Now, I always want to say, and, and my first principle, uh, and by the way, the 14 principles are broken down into four different cycles, test, build, accelerate, and scale, which is what I think businesses go through all the time. And I don't care what size you are. You could be a small startup or an Amazon or a Microsoft or a, you know whatever, big business. But you're always testing new ideas. And the first principle there is encourage successful failure. And, and what that means is if you are building a culture in your business from day one, right, from when you first start, that experimentation is necessary for developing new products for invention, then you've got to build that culture and you've got to support the failure. So the, the process is experimentation is required. If you know it's not going to fail, it's not an experiment. But an experiment by its very nature has failure built into it. So then kind of back to your question, Victor, is how do you figure out how much to take or how little to take? And, and I think that one of the things that Amazon did quite well, in fact, and it's proven over the years, is they were very intentional about the risks they were taking and the experiments they were doing. They did small things in the beginning and kept building and iterating as they went or went through. And you look at Amazon today and they have all kinds of failures. They shut down products. They shut down, you know, grocery stores, you know, the fresh market. I mean, they pull things off the, the their plate that aren't working the way they hoped they would or at the scale they thought it could. And so they're willing to suffer those failures. And at the same time, you look at things like Prime or Amazon Marketplace or the Kindle or Amazon Web Services, huge big bets that have been very successful that have more than paid for the failures. Now, again, I know people are thinking, well, I'm not an Amazon. I don't have the resources. And I always want to remind people that Jeff Bezos started in a garage, like many, if not most other entrepreneurs with an idea he thought would make sense and work and he kept working at it and he took small bets in the, in the beginning and was able to grow and take larger bets as they continued to do that that continued to grow as a business no and, and i and that's right yeah he did start it pretty much in a garage space and it was very small and i remember in the 90s mid 90s i remember hearing about amazon and I was like, basically, they were focused on selling books. And if you, yep. you order $35 or more, you get free shipping, stuff like that. Yep. And and they kept talking about it. But I, I kept thinking, and this is what I thought back then in the early years. I was like, well, why is everyone so hung, gung ho on Amazon? They're always in the red. Their first few years, they were in the red. They were not well, making money. Probably their money. first 10 years. They yeah. 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 They were struggling. So I was yeah. like, saying, but everyone has said, this is an up and coming company. But lo and behold, uh, like you said, the things they did. You know, and they were they were encouraging successful failure. They experimented, and they were intentional about the risk. They were taking out know, some things in a workout, but other things, like you said, Prime has you know been a huge success in them. Other things, not not so successful, but they're not afraid. And I could say I was in the corporate world for a lot of years, and I could tell you a lot of uh, 
corporate uh, America does not encourage uh, fail. Yeah. They, people are afraid to make mistakes because you get yelled at, you get criticized, you can get penalized, you can get demoted, you can get fired. So people are afraid to take risks, whereas the more successful companies, they allow them to, they encourage experimentation, they encourage them to, okay, you're going to mess up sometimes, but you know what, we're going to have successes if you, if you, so we encourage you to take these risks, but a lot of companies will not do it, and as a, as a result, people are afraid to, and people get frustrated, so that's another reason why a lot of them often leave is going because exactly. they, they, they feel, you know, the hamstrung, they, they, they handcuffed, they can't do anything with it, so that's a very important point you make, you made, also you mentioned it, it, it uh, they eagerly adapt to external trends to grow their business. And you gave the example of AI, which you know, a lot of businesses are starting to look into right now. So definitely some really good points there. Um, yeah, so another thing you talk about, um, actually, actually, you might talk a little bit more because you talked about testing and um, you know, the scale, the four, uh, the four parts. You test, uh -huh. build, accelerate, and scale. Talk a little bit more about because some people may not be aware of what it's all about. So you mind talking, going into a little more detail about it? Well, again, so, you know, these are cycles, so businesses go through them. And frankly, as a business grows, you might have different divisions or departments go through these, right? So it's not just the business. It could be subsets, whatever that looks like in your organization. But you test an idea, a product, a service, a platform. You think it's going to work. You then build on that initial success, trying to prove that, yes, this is viable, that customers want it, they'll pay for it, et cetera. And then you accelerate that growth once you get some of that success. And then the scale is as you continue to grow, how do you maintain, and again, like you just said, Victor, how do you maintain like the culture in the business? You know, part of what happens is as a business grows, they tend to get bureaucratic meaning they add layers of management. And at least in Bezos thinking, that's a problem because when you add layers of approval and decision-making, you slow down the potential growth for that business. You know, so again, all, and, and let me say this, the principles all stand on their own, but they also interact with one another. Um, and, you know, another principle that's, I think, core, certainly we see it at Amazon, and I think it's core for any business, is in the build cycle, it's obsess over customers. And I think people would say with Amazon, that's sort of known and experienced in terms of what they do, how they treat customers, how they invent on their behalf, one of Bezos' phrases. And I think the word you know, again, at any business that's selling knows they need to take care of customers. I mean, that's core. But obsess over customers seems to add a different layer or level to that focus. Because a lot of businesses talk about customer service, customer journey, customer focus. But when you obsess over customers, when you know your customers so deeply that you know their wants, needs, and desires then you can actually create products, platforms, or services that you know will resonate with them because you know those customers so well. Yeah, I like that uh, customer obsession over simple focus. Um, I remember Tony Robbins says you got to fall in love with your customer. You know, I mean, you got to do it. I just obsess about, you know, what their needs and wants and desires are. And they're going to appreciate it because they feel like they're heard, they're understood. And, and a, lot, a lot of people don't understand is 
There's a lot of other people and companies vying for their attention. This day and age, people are getting bombarded with emails, text messages, phone calls. So if yeah. you're not you're not reaching out and showing them that you care about them, that you understand them, someone else is very likely going to take them away from you. So I love that talk, uh, that discussion about customer obsession. It, it can it's it can make such a huge difference. And um, yeah, so definitely good stuff. Um, so. So let's talk a little bit more about it. so uh, so let's talk about high velocity decision making and um and how does that catapult growth using uh Bezos's two main types of decisions and by the way I also like the fact you met uh, I forgot to mention I love the way you brought up about bureaucracy that happens in a lot of companies and it does stunt growth and it's something a lot of companies have to be aware of so I just wanted to throw that in but anyway get again back yeah to so high velocity decision making is one of those keys um. Uh, at, at Amazon and can be at other companies. And, and really what it means is the bureaucracy that companies build is based on the idea that the people that they've hired aren't qualified to make the decision. So you have to take it somewhere else, right? Different level, maybe more experience, et cetera. But in Bezos thinking and what he tried to build at Amazon and was pretty successful at it is that there are decisions in a company that are bet the farm decisions and what he calls them type one decisions. And those decisions are really, really important. And he says those decisions should be made slowly with as much data and information as you can gather and with your gut intuition. So that's probably somebody higher up in the organization, more experience, been around longer. But he says the problem is, is those type one decisions are very few and far between. He said, more typically are type two decisions, which are the opposite. Those are decisions that are easily reversed, should be pushed down to the lowest level that's capable and has the knowledge, experience, and skills to make that decision. And a type two decision should be made fast with at most 70% of the information you wish you had. Now, that's a really interesting concept is you can't wait to get everything. So you move faster. And the idea here is you make that decision and it's the wrong one. You find out later, nope, that was not the right way to go. It's easily or at least more easily reversed, changed, pivot. So you can then make another decision to change direction. And that allows speed in the company, not slowing down and having to go through multiple layers of approval process. So that, that becomes really important for a company to continue to grow at a rapid pace. Okay, that's very interesting. With so type one's the biggest bet to form type of decision, you got to Make it slowly. Get us get as much data as possible. Go with gut decision. That's someone has to be high up in the chain. Whereas right. type two is it can be easily reversed. Has to be made quickly. Um, you only need seventy percent of the information you need to make it, but it can be easily changed, reversed, and it's you try to move it further down. So, uh, so, it, so that's how you break up the two types of decision. And this way, uh, things don't stagnate. So, like, you know, you, you want to wait forever for type decision. You want to make it relatively quickly, and then you can just change it. 
Exactly. Exa and it kind of goes back to that encourage successful failure idea is, you know, you want to make good decisions. We're not saying that. And you, you're better off moving forward than getting stuck in analysis paralysis. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what companies, one of the uh, companies still come out is Google, one of the other ones. I remember like they believe in having no cubicles. They want all open space so that everyone can talk to one another so no one's just hidden behind so that yeah. they can share ideas and just learn from one another. One of, I don't forget which one of the big companies does that. And I think it's pretty interesting because I think they want to avoid that bureaucracy, just stick on doing one thing at a time. But you know, have an open air atmosphere so everyone can hear each other and talk to each other and just be open to new ideas, which I think is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's some of the tension that we're feeling right now with kind of return to work idea is that there's there, I'm convinced there is something that happens when you randomly interact with people, uh, ideas, thoughts, you know, all those kinds of things versus, you know, remote exclusively. So I, I don't know where that balance is. That's what people are trying to figure out right now. But yeah, I think that's part of what's happening is that recognition of the, the interaction, the collaboration, the, the communication that happens when you're next to people or in the same area. Oh, yeah. I, I, I agree with you on that. There's something different when you're in person with someone um, yeah, like I say, yeah, they have to forget about maybe three days a week at home, two days at work or whatever. Well, yeah, uh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't that, know where the right balance is yet. But. Exactly. Yeah. But but when you actually see them in person, just everything changes. The relationship, the friendship, the the, the uh, everything just changes. The, the working relationship, everything just totally changes when you actually see them in person. Just the yeah. feel, the vibes, everything is, is totally yeah. different. So I, I agree. agree with you on that. Now, so getting toward the end of the interview, are are there any last minute pieces of, of advice you'd like to leave with our audience? So I think one, the last principle, and it's actually number 14, um, is called Believe It's Always Day One. And that's a really core concept uh, with Bezos and at Amazon. And uh, he first used that phrase uh, in the 1997 letter he wrote. That was the first letter after they went public. And he said, this is day one for the internet and for Amazon.com if we execute well. And what's interesting to me is he used that phrase or something very similar to close every letter he wrote since. It's still day one. It's always day one. So really core idea. And it's a mindset that do you still have the excitement of when you first started your business? Are, are you walking in in the morning thinking this is the first day, this is day one. And I again, I think that's kind of one of those ideas that helps people maintain that excitement of being in business, starting a business and growing a business. I like that idea. You know, believe it's always day one. You know, you have that excitement you have like when you first started a business. And sometimes uh, people in company don't have that excitement. So it's a right. good reminder. So I, I, I think that's a great idea that uh, Bezos came up with for Amazon. Just have that excitement. You know, always think of it. And he kept repeating and reminding people, you know, believe yeah. it's day one. So I think that's a great idea for. Well, and I, uh, if we have a couple more minutes, I'll tell sure, you. Sure, sure, sure. He, he was asked a question at a all hands meeting. And the question was, Jeff, what does day two look like? And he kind of pondered a minute. He said, I think I know the answer to this. He said, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, 
followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. And that's why it's always day one. And oh, again, I we look at some of those companies that I mentioned at the beginning that were once very successful and are no longer here, you can kind of see that process. Now, it may take 20 years or longer for that to happen, but once a company starts down that day two mindset, it's really hard to reverse that trend. No, I, I, I like that. So he warns about what happens. You know, the stasis is going to be a painful decline and there's all this and then death. Yeah. So that's a good reminder. That's why you want to stay at day one because you want to go through those uh, st uh, terrible stages later on. That's right. So that's a great way to end things. Listen, Stan, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's a real pleasure having you on. You shared a lot of great value, a lot of great wisdom. And I know the people listening uh, definitely appreciate all the great things that you shared. And if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to contact you? Well, uh, two ways. One is the book website is thebezosletters.com. And second is I'm act pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, actually. So that would be the, the two ways to go. And you might, Steve Anderson might show up, but uh, Steve Anderson Insurance or Steve Anderson Bezos, uh, you show up, connect with me. Let me know you listened uh, into this podcast. I'd be glad to connect with you. Sounds great. Thanks again, Steve. Have yourself a great day. Thank you, Victor. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please smash that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our amazing episodes. Please also leave a five-star rating review and have an awesome day.